The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode I'll be talking about Freddie Mercury and his legendary band Queen. Freddie was one of the most captivating and entertaining frontmen the world has ever seen. While Queen as a band were a quartet of creative musical masterpieces, and an epic songwriters who were once the biggest band in the world of rock music. They paved the way for countless musicians to follow in their footsteps and connected with audiences all over the world. From Freddie's childhood days to the heights of his career and the eventual death of a legend, this is the story of Freddie Mercury. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Freddie Mercury was born Farouk Balsara on the East African island of Zanzibar, Tanzania on the 5th of September 1946. He was born at 7 pounds and was a healthy baby boy. Farouk aka Freddie was in the public eye very early on during his childhood as he won first place for photo of the year in Zanzibar for his baby photo depicting a smiley happy boy which was submitted by his mother. At an early age, Freddie would develop four extra teeth in the back of his mouth, pushing his front teeth forward, creating an overbite and buck teeth appearance. This earned him the nickname Bucky, and he was often bullied about his appearance throughout his schooling days and even into adulthood. He was often seen trying to cover his teeth with his top lip, which was often mistaken as a nervous tick. Freddie would later embrace his teeth and refuse to get the teeth removed, as he believed it increased his octave vocal range and added to his exotic appearance. Freddie's parents, Bomi and Jer Balsara, were Indian Parsis, which means they were of Persian ancestry, and their ancestors had fled from Iran due to Islam replacing their faith of Zoroastrian as their main religion in the region. The Balsaras followed the ancient religion of Zoroastrian, and were originally from Gurujat on the western coastline of India and had relocated to Zanzibar due to Bomi's work commitments as a cashier at the British Colonial Office or High Court. The Bolsaras were not rich but were considered wealthy by Zanzibar's standards where they lived a comfortable life and settled in an apartment in Stonetown. They had a nanny and some houseworkers but it wasn't long before Jer fell pregnant with their first child, Farouk, and then six years later, Freddie's sister, Kashmira, was born in 1952. Life was rather basic for children growing up in Zanzibar. With not much to do, Freddie would put most of his time into hanging out with friends and learning to play piano on the family's white grand piano. He was encouraged by his parents to engage in sports, music and art, although education was extremely important to the Balsaras. 
Due to religious beliefs, Freddie's father was concerned about Freddie going down the musical path, although he would not stand in his way. Freddie loved music and would often listen to a range of cultured music such as Indian, African and westernised English music. He would sing at functions and parties whether asked to or not as he loved putting smiles on people's faces when he sung. Freddie was a super fan of Jimi Hendrix and looked up to the guitar hero and rock superstar as his idol. He loved fashion from an early age and Hendrix's groundbreaking style and success despite being an outsider inspired Freddie to follow in his footsteps. Freddie would often browse fashion magazines as a child and dreamed of seeing the world. In 1955, this dream would soon become reality as Freddie's father, Bomi, came up with the funds to send Freddie to a boarding school in India. At just eight years old, Freddie was given a major responsibility as he was sent by boat travelling 3,000 miles solo to India from Zanzibar. When he docked, he would then board a train followed by a number of buses to reach his destination at St. Peter's Boarding School in Bombay, which is now known as Mumbai. The journey took a lengthy 60 days, a massive feat for someone so young and far away from his family. On the 14th of February 1955, Freddie began his education at the St. Peter's Boys School. Freddie excelled at sports, art and music during his schooling days. He was a great boxer and quite a handy field hockey player. Freddie was known to be unbeatable at table tennis and a solid sprinter, but personally hated cross-country running. In his first year in 1955, he received best all-rounder and is seen in a famous image sitting on a chair with a wide grin, his large trophy at his feet, wearing his school blazer as he sits proudly folding his arms. Freddie enjoyed playing and watching tennis and enjoyed watching rugby, but found sports like football and cricket to be rather boring. The boys at St. Peter's were taught how to speak proper English and how to pronounce words properly. This led Freddie to develop a posh British accent. They were also taught the religion of Christianity due to these British colonial influences, but despite this, Freddie would remain faithful to his Zoroastrian faith. Freddie would only see his parents and sister annually, with most of the time spent away from his family. At the age of nine, Freddie would visit and stay with his aunt and play a piano on school holidays. His aunt was very supportive of Freddie's love of music, as they would listen to a range of music together. Freddie would soak up all the exotic sounds of Bombay and British music. His auntie could see he was very talented at both music and art. As he began to become more infatuated with music, he asked his parents to pay for piano lessons. They agreed and Freddie's ability on piano was noticeable quite early. Freddie's other interests at the time included stamp collecting, with his collection including stamps from New Zealand, Zanzibar, India, the UK, Yemen and Monaco. He was asked by a fellow student if he wanted to start a school band. Freddie jumped at the opportunity and they soon formed a group consisting of three other boys and would name themselves the Hectics. They played rock and roll type covers of artists such as Cliff Richard and Little Richard. One of Freddie's Hectics bandmates explained that Freddie would often listen to westernised pop music and seemed genuinely interested in this style of music. His school friend also mentioned his ability to memorise music that he had heard on the radio and transfer this straight to his piano. It is said that he began to call himself Freddie at St. Peter's around this time 
as he preferred the more westernised name, and he was often referred to as Freddy Bolsara from here on by his teachers and peers. Freddy played piano and sung vocals for the Hectics, performing for the local boarding school, and the local schoolgirls were also allowed to attend. Despite being a great pianist at such a young age, he would doubt his ability tremendously throughout his career. While playing with the Hectics, Freddy's first childhood romance blossomed with Guitar Chotsky, a female fan of the Hectics who would show up to all of his shows. Evidence also suggests Freddie performed in several school plays in 1958, often playing female character roles, while Freddie would later state that much experimentation with his sexuality started while attending the all-boys school at St. Peter's. After eight years of study, Freddie failed his year 10 exams, which ended his time at St. Peter's, forcing him to leave at the start of 1963 at the age of 17. Freddie would briefly attend another school in Mumbai called St. Mary's before returning to his parents in Zanzibar due to political unrest in the country. In 1964, just a year later, Freddie and his family were forced to flee from Zanzibar to their mother country England due to a violent and bloody revolution killing many Arabs and Indians who had been residing there. The Bolsaras were lucky to escape but would give up their wealth and comfort for working class England. The Bolsaras moved to 22 Gladstone Avenue, Feltham in Middlesex, England. The family took a step back in living standards compared to life in Zanzibar. Despite settling in the suburbs, Freddie was excited for this new adventure and quickly embraced the 60s hippie lifestyle and revolution. While Freddie began to experience the wonders of his new home, his parents didn't adapt as well to the hippie lifestyle, instead choosing to stick to their Zoroastrian and Parsi roots. They wanted Freddie to study to become a lawyer or an accountant, but Freddie wanted to be a star. Freddie's parents would often wonder why Freddie wanted to be different and became conflicted with some of his lifestyle choices at the time. When Freddie began experimenting with outrageous fashion, he revealed that his parents were embarrassed and shocked by his choices, as he was quoted as saying, I used to go home periodically and turn up in these outrageous clothes, with my fingernails painted black and at the time, my mother used to freak out. They used to say, My God, don't let the neighbours see you. Come in here quick, use the back door. His parents were quiet and reserved people, and they didn't understand the culture and experimentation at the time. It was a time of revolution and change in the UK, and Freddie would lap up the music and fashion scenes. He often stood out with his short, slick-back, greased hair, and changed his appearance soon after as a means to fit in. Shortly after growing his hair long like those his age and changing his clothing style, Freddie would be sent straight to work packing crates at North Feltham Trading Estate and soon working at Heathrow Airport as a baggage handler. But these were hard times for immigrants, especially of Indian backgrounds, as racism and distrust swept through the local area due to an influx of Indian immigrants at the time. Protests were held in order to stop letting fleeing families into the country, saying that they were spoiling the country despite taking jobs that others didn't want to do anyhow. As Freddie had not completed his Year 10 exams, he had no academic qualifications. He was ineligible to apply for art school. In 1964, an 18-year-old Freddie enrolled and began studying at Isleworth Polytechnic to further his higher education skills leaving just two years later in 1966 with a top-level accreditation to his name. 
He would then commence a graphic design course shortly after at the Ealing College of Art, the same college that future rock and roll stars Peter Townshend of The Who and Ronnie Wood of The Rolling Stones had been enrolled at just a few years prior to Freddie's arrival. Freddie became a great graphic artist, drawing amazing portraits of his music idols such as Jimi Hendrix and Paul McCartney. While attending college, Freddie was still living at home with his parents and had been writing songs of his own on pieces of paper that he would hide under his pillow, often reminding his mother Jer not to go throwing them out as they were important. Freddie began to become more interested in fashion while at Ealing and switched to a fashion course halfway through his studies. He would then produce clothing for catwalk shows. Despite studying and having other interests, it was at Ealing when he became familiar with a few other notable local musicians who inspired Freddie to pursue music instead. One of those local musicians was Tim Staffel, the lead singer of a band called Smile. The two hit it off and soon became good friends. Freddie, Tim and several others would meet up at the men's toilets and harmonise and sing together as the men's bathroom provided great acoustics and an echo effect that enhanced their voices. Between the years 1966 and 1970, Freddie performed with a number of bands including a band from Liverpool called Ibex where he performed as their lead singer. Former bandmates described Freddie as a very shaky singer at the time and the band didn't think he suited their style. Freddie honed his stage persona while with Ibex as he moved provocatively and camp-like with his various hand gestures, pouts, poses and struts. He was unique and when he was on stage, the shy and quiet side turned into an eccentric performer who demanded the attention of the audience. At one performance, Freddie began swinging the mic stand around which resulted in the bottom end falling out. He quickly tried to reconnect it, but he was struggling, so instead of stopping the song, he embraced it and turned it into part of his performance. The equipment was made from cheap material as the band was quite poor. The crowd reacted positively, so he decided to perform from here on out with the half mic stand and microphone, creating an iconic look that would last for his whole career. On the band's first night of performing live, they met the rest of the band's smile, which included Freddie's Ealing college mate Tim Staffel, guitarist Brian May, and drummer Roger Taylor. Freddie had already been introduced to the band by friend and smile keyboard player Chris Smith, and had attended smile shows regularly after this, taking a keen interest in the band. He would show up enthusiastically to performances, often going backstage and critiquing the band after the show and offering them advice on how they could improve their music and fashion sense. Freddie's friendship with Tim brought him even closer to the band and Freddie would even become well known to Brian and Roger over time. Freddie's band Ibex would soon change their name to Wreckage but failed to break into the mainstream so Freddie decided to move on to a new band named Sour Milk Sea based out of Oxford. The band was only a short-lived project, which led to Freddie looking for a new band to front. Smile happened to be on the lookout for a new lead singer after Tim Staffel decided to leave the band to take up an opportunity with another hopeful British band called Humpy Bong, led by former Bee Gees drummer Colin Peterson. Staffel was attracted to the offer as they had recently performed on the British music TV show Top of the Pops, and his own band Smile was struggling playing gigs at pubs and clubs and never seeming to get anywhere. Freddie being a super fan of Smile and knowing all the songs, threw his hat in the ring, jumping at the opportunity, and offered to become the new lead singer. Brian and Roger weren't so convinced at the time that Freddie was a good technical singer, as he was still developing his style and control over his voice but they were impressed by his showmanship and ability to engage the crowd. After much discussion between the two, 
they decided to allow Freddie to join the band. Brian May was born on the 19th of July 1947. At the time he was an intelligent, frizzy, curly, dark-haired young man in his early 20s and was raised in Hampton, Middlesex. He studied physics as an undergraduate at Imperial College in London, but was also a keen astronomer. After graduating with a Bachelor of Science degree, he studied a PhD in astronomy, completing this much later in life. At this time, he was a very keen musician and was a great guitarist. He would play a homemade red electric guitar called the Red Special that his dad built for him from scratch out of a 200-year-old mantelpiece. Brian was also a member of a five-piece band called 1984, which featured Tim Staffel as the lead singer. Together they decided to start Smile and posted up a flyer at the university looking for a drummer. They were joined by Roger Taylor, born on the 26th of July, 1949. He was an outgoing, blonde, long-haired young man who was also in his teens. He was a machine on the drums and was known for wearing sunglasses 24-7. Roger also had a degree in biology and was a car enthusiast. Jamming for the first time in a small jazz room, Tim, Roger and Brian found that they had a great chemistry and similar style. They were joined by a fourth member, keyboard player Chris Smith, who attended Ealing with Freddie and Tim. Chris knew there was something special about Freddie and had noticed Freddie had a great talent as a vocalist and pianist. Freddie also knew this and had always felt like he was destined for greatness, as he would one day say to Chris, I'm not going to be a pop star. I'm going to be a legend. Freddie was now driven to succeed as a musician and in his spare time he would sell secondhand clothes and scarves at Kensington Markets in London in order to support his musical ambitions. It was a famous hangout for hippies full of bright and colourful stalls. Friends of Freddie believe it was around this time that he found his flamboyant personality and would often refer to people as darling. Those close to Freddie described him as a reserved and shy person behind closed doors, but outspoken and showy in public. He loved to smoke cigarettes and his drink of choice would be vodka. Freddie began to develop his own sense of style, wearing feminine attire regularly and painting his nails. On occasions, Roger would assist Freddie with the stall, along with a friend of Brian's and Freddie's future girlfriend, Mary Austin. In 1969, Freddie completed his Ealing College degree, but was more focused than ever to pursue his musical passion. In 1970, Freddie, aged 24, began a relationship with the beautiful Mary Austin, aged 19, where the two fell deeply in love with one another. Mary was said to be working in a music store and a clothing store called Beaver at the time. They met through Freddie's bandmate, Brian May, who had met her at a college concert. They got chatting as she was sitting behind him, and the two went on a date together. They realised after just the one date that they would be better off as friends, and Mary would continue to form part of the band's entourage. Freddie would often notice Mary hanging out around the band backstage, and Brian encouraged Freddie to ask her out if he liked her, assuring him that it hadn't worked out between the two. It took Freddie five to six months before he gained enough courage to ask her out, and when he finally did, she happily agreed to date him. Within five months, the two would begin living together, where they moved into a cramped flat in London. They adopted two cats who were like their children, and named them Tom and Jerry after the cartoon. This started Freddie's love and obsession for his cats, who would get him through some tough times. Freddie and Mary's relationship was always loving, and the two were always gentle and kind to one another. 
Mary would look after Freddie almost like his carer at times, and he's believed to have helped him financially in the early stage of his career when he joined Smile due to his fashion store struggling to sell much at all. Freddie had previously had girlfriends in the past, but none of them compared to Mary. She would now accompany Freddie as his girlfriend to his Smile gigs and continue to help out at his stall in Kensington Market. Freddie and Smile would travel to nightclubs and universities playing for small audiences across London and other surrounding areas. Freddie's first performance with Smile was on the 27th of June 1970 at a small hall. Those attending were blown away by the stage presence of Freddie and how he would work the crowd as if he was performing to thousands. This made them stand out over other bands at the time and paved the way for their success to come. In 1970, the band began to search for a bass player and went through Mike Gross, Barry Mitchell and Doug Bogey before they found the perfect bassist in 1971. Smile were finally joined by a bass guitarist, John Deacon. John was a long brown-haired 20-year-old born on the 19th of August 1951 and was quiet and reserved. He instantly gelled with the band musically, although he would later reveal that it took him around three years to feel part of the band. He also had a degree in electronics. Smile would soon move to release keyboard player Chris Smith and decided they needed a fresh name and look, so Freddie came up with the band name, Queen. Freddie is quoted as saying, It's very regal, obviously, and it sounds splendid. It's a strong name, very universal and immediate. I was certainly aware of the gay connotations, but that was just one facet of it. After picking a strong and outlandish name for the band, Freddie, having previously studied graphic design, came up with the concept for their logo, known as the Queen's Crest, which resembles a majestic royal coat of arms. The Queen's Crest encompasses the zodiac signs of the four band members. Two lions for Deacon and Taylor representing Leo, a crab for May representing Cancer, and two fairies for Mercury representing Virgo. The lion grips to the letter Q, the crab rests atop the letter with the flames rising above and the fairies are each hiding below a lion. A crown is shown inside the queue and the whole logo is overshadowed by a giant phoenix. The logo would also feature on Roger's drum kit. With the new logo and name in place, Freddie and the members of Queen set off to capture the world's attention. The band began recording demos at D-Lane Lee Studios in London, looking to be signed by a record label and are said to have knocked back their first offer by Chrysalis Records as the offer was too low, knowing that they were worth more despite being unproven. It was at Delane Lee Studios where they were noticed by producers John Anthony and Roy Thomas Baker. After impressing the two producers, they were referred to Trident Studios, owned by the Sheffield brothers Norman and Barry. Norman invited Queen to record at Trident Studios and would sign a contract to act as their manager until they could find a record deal. Queen's influences would filter into the band's early styles with the four members all bringing their different interests and favourites to the table to develop their sound. These influences are said to be The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Cream, The Kinks, The Who, Black Sabbath, Pink Floyd, Genesis and Yes. While Freddie's major influences included Aretha Franklin, Jimi Hendrix, Robert Plant, Elvis Presley, David Bowie and John Lennon. Freddie thought very highly of John Lennon and his creativity and drew inspiration throughout his career from the Beatles' White Album in relation to building and producing effects in songs. 
The influence of the Beatles would be evident on Queen's first two albums, while Freddie's flamboyant stage persona draws similarities to Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin and his fashion sense from both Jimi Hendrix and Plant. In 1972, the band began work on their first studio album, and due to the studio's popularity, paying artists would have priority bookings. This meant that Queen would have to record in the studio's downtime late of an evening or early morning in unwanted time slots. Some of these high-priority artists included Elton John and the Beatles. Despite this, they were given free access to everything within the recording studio, including high-quality equipment, allowing them to experiment. Upon completing their first demo tape, John Anthony and Roy Thomas Baker decided their five demos weren't good enough and needed to be re-recorded. This angered the band and Mercury, as they believed they were as polished as they could be, but they were forced to cooperate and attempted to record the songs again. After several frustrating attempts and Mercury becoming angered and unhappy with the sound of the songs, sound engineer Mike Stone stepped in and asked them to record just one more time. Luckily this paid off and Queen would then sign to Trident and EMI Records during 1973. Satisfied with the finished product after completing some more tracks for the, their first album, Queen released their debut self-titled album Queen on the 13th of July 1973. Although it wouldn't be the best of starts for Queen with the album at its peak only reaching number 24 on the UK album charts and was not seen as a commercial success. Despite becoming a fan favourite in later years, with Freddie writing five of the ten tracks on the album, it featured their first single, Keep Yourself Alive, which failed to chart. Doing alright, the former Smile track, the crowd favourite titled Liar, and a teaser instrumental of Seven Seas of Rye. The album was understood to have been influenced by bands such as Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, and was a promising start for the band despite its lack of hits and sales. It was praised for its high-energy metal rock style and great guitar riffs. It was during these early days that Queen would perform encores consisting of Jailhouse Rock and Big Spender, some of Freddie's favourite covers. During 1973, Freddie would officially change his name from Freddie Bulsara to Freddie Mercury after the song My Fairy King he had written about a mother that reminded him of his own. The line, O oh Mother Mercury, what have you done to me? Inspiring his surname change. Other theories suggest Freddie was afraid of his Indian background holding him back, as there were very few, if any, popular foreign or Indian rock stars circulating the mainstream, and the fear of copying racism was also perhaps a factor which had been the case in the past while living in England. Many of the tracks were from the early days of Smile and songs Mercury had written while with Ibex. To this day, Queen's debut album would go on to sell 3.1 million copies worldwide. It was in 1973 that Freddie and Mary would relocate to 100 Holland Road in London. It was here where Freddie would propose to Mary. He handed Mary a large box. Inside was a smaller box followed by a smaller box and so on until she found a beautiful jade ring inside. The proposal was unexpected but Mary happily said yes. On the 8th of March 1974, Queen had its first breakthrough in the UK. They released their second album, Queen 2, and it climbed to number 5 on the UK charts. The only single off the album featured the song Seven Seas of Rye, which reached number 10 in the UK. Freddie wrote Seven Seas of Rye after a fantasy world named Rye he and his sister Kashmira had made up when they were children back in Zanzibar, 
with these references to the land of Roa being used in a number of future and present tracks, including Lily of the Valley, My Fairy King, and March of the Black Queen. Queen soon gained a sudden surge of popularity when a stroke of luck came their way, when British artist David Bowie pulled out of his slot for the top of the pops due to his video for Rebel Rebel not yet being complete. Queen being the only band available jumped at the opportunity with Freddie dressed in black satin and providing a high energy performance sparking the interest of many around the UK. Due to a strike at the TV station at BBC at the time, they were required to film the song in a tiny weather studio. Top of the Pops required its performers to lip sync and pretend to play instruments, which frustrated the band, but the exposure was exactly what they needed to kickstart their success. Although Freddie and his bandmates were not seeing much of the profits from their first hit come their way, Freddie was finally able to quit his clothes stall in Kensington Market to focus solely on his career as a musician. Although Freddie is credited with writing the song, it is more of a group production, but Freddie was often stubborn and they would get into arguments over songwriting credits, with egos getting in the way. The unwritten rule within the band was whoever comes up with the lyrics and rhythm receives the royalties and credit, with Freddie coming up with the piano part and lyrics and Brian with the other sections. The album also featured the track March of the Black Queen, which featured 11 different sections, overdubbing of the voices of Roger, Freddie and Brian, creating a choir-like sound. This method would be used on one of their biggest hits down the track. Brian and Freddie would both write the majority of the songs for the album, with Roger also writing one. While the strange and quirky heavy metal track called Ogre Battle, penned by Freddie, would be some of his most experimental and heaviest rock songs he had ever written. The song explores fantasy and would become a fan favourite at live concerts, with a battle sequence taking part during their shows, as lasers, flashing lights and smoke effects are used. A similar track about fantasy was written by Brian May titled White Queen As It Began, which tells the tale of a medieval journey to visit the White Queen. Much of Queen's early work would involve telling the stories of fantasy before becoming more deeper and taken from real-life experiences on their future albums. Despite the success of their single, the album received mixed reviews with critics such as Rolling Stone magazine awarding it only 2.5 stars out of 5. Some pointed out their excellent writing ability and unique sound, but overall it lacked major hits. Queen did, however, begin to build a cult following with their high-energy performances and stage presence. Overall, the album would struggle to sell as well as their debut, with just over 3 million copies sold. Queen were assigned to support rock band Mott the Hoople, and would tour the UK together before they were asked to do the same in America. The members of Mott became impressed with the young band, and so did other stars. Jim Kerr from Simple Minds remembers watching Queen as the support act and witnessed Queen blow Mott the Hoople off stage, with their amazing performance setting the standard as a hard act to follow. It was the first time the band had ever been to the States, and they were joined by another rookie band at the time called Aerosmith, who were their second support band for Mott the Hoople. Queen's tour of the US saw the album peak at number 43 on the US charts. Guitarist for Bon Jovi, Richie Sambora, recalls seeing them on three separate occasions, impressing him each time, and he says that he'll never forget the performance. The tour was going well until guitarist Brian May unfortunately fell ill with hepatitis halfway through the tour, cutting it short and having no other option but to return to London. 
Freddie, Roger and John began working on the band's third album, with Brian joining them halfway through the process after recovering. On the 8th of November 1974, their third album released was titled Sheer Heart Attack. Produced by Roy Thomas Baker and the band for the third time in a row, the album was widely popular, reaching number two in the UK and breaking into the US top 20 on the Billboard charts at number 12. The album went platinum for the first time in the band's history in the UK. The critics, while some negative, were mainly positive and rated the album highly, which provided Freddie and Queen with confidence in their altered style to further dominate the charts in the future. The album centred around a more radio-friendly pop-rock style that saw them create the Queen sound that we know and love today. The two singles from the album included Now I'm Here, which reached number 12 in the UK, and Killer Queen, which was a huge hit for the band, reaching number 2 in the UK and 12 in the US. In another Top of the Pops performance, Freddie is pictured strutting around camp-like on stage, dressed in a large fur coat for the Killer Queen hit. The song was written by Freddie about a high-class call girl or prostitute and suited his persona down to a T. Other great tracks on the album included a similar style track to Killer Queen titled Flick of the Wrist, a surprising thrash metal track titled Stone Cold Crazy, and the beautiful ballad titled Lily of the Valley. Freddie writing both of these tracks with Lily of the Valley being a reference to a French novel by the same name and referring to a deeper meaning surrounding his love for Mary but feeling confused and conflicted over his sexuality. John Deacon would have his first song written under his name included on the album titled Misfire which is funnily enough about premature ejaculation. Quite an odd way to receive your first writing credits but I'm sure John didn't mind. Brian wrote the band's second biggest hit from the album titled Now I'm Here about the experience of touring the US with Mott the Hoople. Queen began touring the US, UK and even Japan, selling many records along the way. The album would go on to become their best seller yet, selling 4.2 million copies worldwide over time and selling over 1 million copies in the US alone. Despite their recent improved sales, the members of Queen would begin to wonder where all of their profits were going. The band was suspiciously not receiving enough money to support themselves. Norman Sheffield was seen driving a new Rolls Royce and getting around in stretched limos, living the good life, while the band could barely afford a new pair of drumsticks. Times got tough for the Queen members, and fears began to creep in that they may have to retire the band early. The band owed money to a range of people utilised on their previous albums, ranging from lighting to production, and the bills continued to pile up. Freddie became upset by the corruption of the Sheffield brothers and reached the point of refusing to write any more songs for the brothers. Queen collectively decided that instead of making an album for the Sheffield brothers, that they would make it for a production company and they would sell it to a record company. In 1975, the band would then look for a new manager and came close to joining Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, under Led Zeppelin's own production company, Swan Song Records, but were unhappy with the offer and approached John Reed instead. John Reed, who at the time was a successful manager for Elton John, was appointed to the role with his impressive list of achievements while ma managing Elton. John Reed told the members of Queen to go make the best album they could and that he could take care of the rest. With some of the pressure off of the band, they went straight to work on their next album. Queen knew this may be their last chance to make it big and had to produce a great album if they wanted to survive financially. John Reed could tell Freddie was struggling with his sexuality at the time 
and as a gay man himself, he offered advice to Freddie and became a good friend of his and the band's. Back in 1974, the media had begun to speculate of Freddie's sexuality when one reporter asked him directly, So how about being bent? Mercury replied, You're a crafty cow. Let's put it this way. There were times when I was young and green. It's a thing schoolboys go through. I've had my share of schoolboy pranks. I'm not going to elaborate further. Mercury's personality, while flamboyant and camp-like on stage, and with those he knew well, Freddie was quite the opposite, as he was quite shy and reserved around those he had only just met. Freddie also had a great sense of humour, which would occasionally break out in his shy personality and in his occasional interviews. He was a man of very few interviews, and preferred the company of his cats more so than people. Mercury stated in an interview, When I'm performing, I'm an extrovert. Yet inside, I'm a completely different man. Freddie would refuse to discuss his sexuality, religion and ethnicity on most occasions. Although he once referred to his Persian background, influencing his flamboyant onstage persona as being a Persian popinjay. Freddie would attempt to remain as private as possible with his personal life, often replying to interviews and media with witty comments and humorous remarks. In early 1975, before their fourth album had been recorded, the four members of Queen finally got their wish and quit Trident Records, escaping the Sheffield brothers and remaining with EMI with the help of John Reed. John Reed began to clean up much of their financial woes and did good by them, putting them in a better position for the release of their upcoming album. Queen were finally ready to reap the rewards for their hard work and hoped this next album would cement them as a force of the music industry. On the 21st of November 1975, Queen would release their fourth studio album titled A Night at the Opera. Queen came up with A Night at the Opera for the album name while at Ridge Farm Studio as they were extremely bored one evening as the farm's rooms were very basic. They all sat together in one of the rooms watching the Marx Brothers film A Night at the Opera. Freddie loved the name and the rest was history. Queen recorded parts of the album at six different studios with the album becoming one of the most expensive albums to produce at the time, costing around £40,000, which is equivalent to £338,000 in 2020. It soared to number one on the album's charts in the UK as well as Australia, New Zealand and on the Dutch chart, and hit a new high in the US reaching number four and number two in Canada. The album featured the beautiful John Deacon written rock ballad about his wife Veronica, known as You're My Best Friend. It would reach number two in Canada, number three in Ireland, and became a top ten hit for Queen in the UK and the Netherlands, while also peaking at number 16 in the US Hot 100. The album also included the beautiful piano ballad written and performed by Freddie called Love of My Life, said to be written by Freddie about Mary Austin and his relationship with her. The song was not released as a single, but is hailed as one of Freddie's greatest ballads and managed to chart at number one for a whole year in Argentina. Some suggest the song is written by Freddie through the eyes of Mary, and how she would react to him if he was to leave the relationship. Although Freddie declared that he simply made up the lyrics to the song and that they weren't related to him or anyone else. While Queen manager John Reed believes the song was written about one of Freddie's first gay relationships with David Minns, as he sings, Love of my life, you've hurt me, you've broken my heart and now you leave me. Love of my life, can't you see? Bring it back, bring it back, don't take it away from me, because you don't know what it means to me.
the heartbreaking and sad ballad becoming one of Freddie's most underrated tracks and a fan favourite, especially in South America, where the crowd beautifully sing the chorus back to Freddie. Freddie at the time was struggling within himself as he began to come to terms with his sexuality despite being deeply in love with Mary, which would have been a confusing time for him. Freddie was torn between living two lives and not wanting to hurt anyone in the process. The track titled Death on Two Legs was led by a shrieking electric guitar rhythm with an overall heavier rock style to much of the tracks on Night at the Opera. Death on Two Legs was both written and produced by Freddie about the Sheffield brothers and their nasty and controlling ways of using Queen as a means of making them rich. Freddie came up with the guitar melody he wanted on piano before asking Brian to mimic this on his guitar. Freddie vents his frustration and anger towards the Sheffield brothers, most notably Norman Sheffield, in this track as he sings, You suck my blood like a leech, you break the law and you breach, screw my brain till it hurts, you've taken all my money, you still want more. Freddie goes on to get all of his anger out as he says, Misguided old mule, with your pig-headed rules, and killjoy bad guy, big-talking small fry. You're just an old barrow boy. Have you found a new toy to replace me? Can you face me? But now you can kiss my ass goodbye. This underrated track from the album would have served as great therapy for Freddie to vent that pain and frustration and to expose the truth of their severe mismanagement. But it wouldn't come without controversy with the Sheffield brothers suing Queen and EMI for defamation, which was later settled out of court revealing to the public that the song was in fact about them. Freddie had almost left it off the album after having second thoughts revealing to Brian that he thought it was too bitter and angry coming from him, but Brian encouraged him to finish it and include the track. They would however play it regularly on their set list at concerts, with Freddie saying before the song starts, this is dedicated to a motherfucker I used to know. Freddie would also pen the upbeat, quirky and humorous tracks Seaside Rendezvous and Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon. Both these tracks had an old-time jazz or ragtime feel to them, which Freddie found was an interesting and challenging style of music that he enjoyed creating. During Seaside Rendezvous, Freddie and Roger can be heard during the musical bridge section mimicking the sound of instruments such as a kazoo, clarinet, tubers and trumpets with their voices. While the tap dancing sounding section is both Freddie and Roger using thimbles on their fingers on the top of the mixing desk. This adds to the quirky nature of the track. Lazing on a Sunday afternoon also added to the genius nature behind Queen as they recorded the track after placing their headphones in a tin bucket, setting up a recorder next to it and singing into a microphone in an opposite room to give it a megaphone type sound. The album is arguably Queen's greatest of all time, with the Brian May-ridden sci-fi folk track about his passion for space exploration and astrology titled 39, and Roger Taylor's song titled I'm In Love With My Car about the band's roadie Jonathan Harris and his love for his Triumph TR4 sports car, which also saw Roger take over on lead vocals for this one. But it would be one song in particular that would change everything for Queen, and they would never look back. Besides these other great tracks, there will be one masterpiece that almost shamefully didn't make the cut as a single. The mock opera written by Freddie titled Bohemian Rhapsody. This was Queen's biggest hit on the album of their career and arguably one of the best songs of all time. Bohemian Rhapsody was such a good song on its own that it didn't even have a chorus and included a number of sections. 
an intro, a ballad section, an operatic section, a rock sequence and a reflective coda. It spent nine weeks at number one in the UK and sold over one million copies by January 1976. In the US it peaked at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 and spent time at number one in countries such as Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, Canada and the Netherlands as six million sales would be recorded worldwide from the track alone. Freddie was aged 29 when he composed Bohemian Rhapsody, with his pianist skills at his best in this six minute epic. His unique style of playing is highlighted by band member Brian as he describes how Freddie would stab at the keys of the piano with his fingers using force and passion. Brian says that Freddie would often put himself down about his piano style, but that's what made him so special. Brian states that while he didn't have a natural elegant style, his ability to attack the keys and act as a human metronome. Freddie came up with all aspects of the song in his head, while he even came up with Brian's guitar solo, telling Brian how to play it to his expectations. Freddie would also position his hands in a unique way compared to traditional players. It is said Freddie would be sleeping and come up with songs in his head while dreaming, so he installed a piano keyboard to become his headboard for his bed. That way he could wake up and play the tune he had thought of without letting it slip away. On one particular night, Freddie began playing the first notes of what would become Bohemian Rhapsody on that very headboard. Freddie was double jointed in his wrists, which allowed him to memorise the keys without looking at them and play backwards behind his head while lying in bed. He would later put lyrics to the tune and wrote the harmonies on the back of a telephone directory. He had all harmonies for the different sections in his head, just like the instrumental sections. In order to get the rest of the album recorded, Freddie suggested the band record the album away from all the pressures of London and travel to Rockfield Studios in South Wales to record the backing vocals. The studio was located on a farm and had simple boarding options for the band. Later on, Queen would finish the album at Ridge Farm Studio located in a small village of Rusper in the English countryside. Surrounded by woodlands and gardens, the band would record in the old medieval farmhouse. Queen would become one of the first big name bands to record there along with Bad Company in 1975. It would later see musicians such as Ozzy Osbourne, Pearl Jam, Oasis, The Smiths, Roxy Music, Aha, Little Richard and Peter Gabriel record there over the years. During recording, Freddie guided his bandmates through his vision. They thoroughly enjoyed the sessions, sharing plenty of laughs along the way, which brought the band closer at this point. The track was recorded on a multi-track comprising of over 180 layered tracks. Interestingly, the multi-track today is required to be baked in an oven before playing in order for the tape to remain intact. The song features overdubbing and layering with echoes fading both in and out and the use of a high tenor and low baritone vocals, especially in the operatic sequence. Roger Taylor is celebrated in this song for his amazing higher range as he repeats Galileo in unison with Freddie singing Galileo in a low tone during the operatic sequence. It is said Freddie made Roger repeat this until he had it exactly right, with producer Roy Thomas Baker claiming Freddie came into the studio saying, Oh, I've got a few more Galileos, dear. With John opting out of vocal responsibilities, the other three would record multiple high and low vocals of the backing vocals and overlay them to make it sound like a choir of people were singing. This was especially in the operatic section. Their three voices worked exceptionally well together, Freddie with his low and wide vocal range, 
Roger singing high and Brian sitting in between. Queen began recording a backing track on piano, drums and bass guitar, adding lead guitar later. All backing tracks could only be done once on the multi-track and the few glitches and errors remain on the final recording of the track. Everything after this would be overdubbed including Freddie, Brian and Roger's vocal parts. They would sometimes record these for almost 10 hours a day. Bohemian Rhapsody took three weeks to record, but it's said that Freddie had parts of the song written back in the late 1960s, according to former Smile keyboard player and friend Chris Smith. It was originally known as the Cowboy Song, and parts from that featured later on in Bohemian Rhapsody. Freddie and the band have always remained very secretive about the true meaning of the song, as a means of protecting Freddie's wish to keep it secret. Some of the theories were quite radical and suggest it is about a man struggling after murdering someone and selling his soul to the Iranian devil, Shatan, but reclaiming it with the help of Bismillah, the Arabic god, and many references to the Quran. Freddie himself explains that he wrote the song as a mock opera, or a parody of one of his favourite genres in opera music, and the lyrics are simply random, rhyming nonsense, as Freddie states, it's one of those songs which has such a fantasy feel about it. I think people should just listen to it, think about it, and then make up their own minds as what it says to them. Despite Freddie remaining rather tight-lipped about the meaning behind the hit, Brian believes that the lyrics are much more meaningful than what is led on. As Brian says, Freddie was a very complex person, flippant and funny on the surface, but he concealed his insecurities and problems in squaring up his life of his childhood. He never explained the lyrics, but I think he put a lot of himself into that song. This led many to question if it is related to Freddy fleeing from Zanzibar with his family and his life growing up. But the most common theory relates to Freddy's sexuality and his struggle at the very time with coming out as a gay man or as a bisexual. It is believed that he attempted to conceal the meaning as a means to protect and not to shame his family due to the Zoroastrian religion condemning homosexuality. The author of the biography titled Mercury believes he was in fact concealing the true meaning referring to his sexuality and managed to reveal that the song was in fact about relationships. Whether that was to religion or people in particular is anyone's guess. But she also believes that Freddie's lover Jim Hutton revealed that it was in fact about his confession about being gay. Author, lyricist and Freddie's good friend Tim Rice also believed Freddie was talking about his sexuality in this particular song as he breaks down the lyrics as follows. Mama, I just killed a man. He's killed the old Freddie he was trying to be. The former image. Put a gun against his head. Pull my trigger, now he's dead. He's dead, the straight person he was originally. He's destroyed the man he was trying to be. And now this is him trying to live with the new Freddy. I see a little silhouette of a man. That's him still being haunted by what he's done and what he is. Without a doubt, it does appear more than likely that Bohemian Rhapsody was in fact referring to his inner battle with coming out as a gay man. But like Freddy and his queen bandmates have stated, the song was intended for their listeners to make up their own minds and relate to the song in their own way. Bohemian Rhapsody initially struggled to take off as their record label, EMI, pushed for You're My Best Friend to be the lead single to promote the album instead. EMI initially thought Bohemian Rhapsody was a joke and would never sell as the song was far too strange and long at six minutes. It was played for other musicians who also said the song would never be a hit or be played on radio. 
This included Elton John, as he said to his manager John Reed, who had brought it to him for his opinion, Are you fucking mad? You'll never get that on radio, and it will never sell. John Reed continued to push the song as the lead single for Queen, but became frustrated and offered the band to cut the track short by removing the operatic section. Freddie was sure it was a hit and wouldn't take no for an answer, so he and the band and producer Roy Thomas Baker bypassed the advice of their label and approached Capital Radio DJ Kenny Everett, a close friend of Freddie. They told him live on air that if they gave him a copy of the track, that he wasn't allowed to play it, as Kenny said, I won't play it, as he winked back at them. Due to this cheeky agreement, Queen could not get into any dispute with their record label. Their plan had worked, and Kenny would be the first to play the song live on air after it was rejected by every other radio station. Kenny began by playing snippets of the track, teasing the audience into wanting more. After many requests to hear the full song, he played the full track over and over, a total of 14 times over two days. Kenny, like so many other listeners, were in love with the track and its potential success was way too hard to ignore. This was the exposure that saw the track catapult its way into the history books. In the US, American DJ Paul Drew heard the English DJ play the track and requested a copy, which he played on American radio, which instantly became popular in the States. The track got passed around to different stations around the UK and the world, and soon it was being played everywhere, with EMI having no choice but to make the song the lead single. It was officially released on the 31st of October, 1975, alongside Roger Taylor's B-side, I'm In Love With My Car after Roger had convinced Freddie to include after apparently locking themselves in a closet together until Freddie gave in and allowed it to be the B-side. The song would be accompanied with a music video which is one of the first of its kind. Seven years before the start of MTV, Bohemian Rhapsody is said to have made the music video concept popularised and was simply a masterstroke. Realising they needed a video for Top of the Pops, and sick of all the old lip-syncing videos that the Top of the Pops required, Queen decided to record their own promotional video for the single, that way they could continue touring while the video was played on the Top of the Pops. The music video was recorded off to the side of a stage at the rehearsal stage at ITV Studios. They stood on milk crates while placing a simple light over them, for most parts providing the notion that they were performing as a live band. Queen also used a range of simple camera lenses to provide them with a kaleidoscope effect during the video and was not a costly production at all, costing them around £4,000 and taking just three to four hours to shoot. The video begins with the four band members' silhouettes singing like a choir facing towards the camera with a dark smoky backdrop. Freddie at the front, Roger and John to the sides and Brian towards the back. They sing, Is This The Real Life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. A piano begins to play and the lights shine onto the faces of Freddie and the band as they continue to sing before a reflective, beautiful and emotive piano sequence begins. Freddie is pictured sitting at a piano in a white satin outfit, singing and playing piano. That is until the rock sequence kicks in and Freddie and the band are seen rocking on stage. The success of the track with 6 million physical single sales and an album which sold over 11.4 million physical copies worldwide over time enabled Queen to repay all their debts and were now financially in the green. Bohemian Rhapsody would go on to become the third highest selling single of all time, while A Night at the Opera became Queen's highest selling studio album of their career. 
In modern times, Bohemian Rhapsody would sell 9 million digital copies, while the album itself would sell a further 2 million digital copies. The music video has now reached over 1 billion views on YouTube, and Bohemian Rhapsody as a single has been streamed over 1.2 billion times on Spotify, making it one of the greatest albums and singles of all time. From 1975 through to 1976, Queen toured to further promote the album and headlined in the US and Canada for the first time and travelled to Australia, Japan and the UK with a range of well-renowned acts featuring as their support acts such as Bob Seger, Cold Chisel, Foghat and Mr Big. For Queen it was a great time in their career with the four members getting along the best they ever had despite the occasional overdramatic spat from Freddie. Despite these good times, Freddie was dealing with a hard personal battle that he looked to share with a close friend. Freddie had a close relationship with DJ Kenny Everett, and Kenny is said to be one of the first that introduced him into the gay club scene. Kenny himself was a gay man, although the two were never lovers. They would confide in each other, and Kenny helped Freddie through these tough times dealing with his sexuality. Kenny attended many of Freddie's wild parties, and would remain close until the fallout much later in 1985. During 1976, off the back of Queen's most successful album to date, and after six years of being with Mary, Freddie had decided to be up front with Mary after years of hiding a big secret. Mary had suspected something was up with Freddie for some time, as he would regularly arrive home very late of an evening, with his excuse being he got caught up at the studio. Mary believed he must have been having an affair with another woman, but she also had her suspicions about his sexuality over time, but personally didn't want to believe it. Freddie, for the last two years of their relationship, began avoiding certain situations and became increasingly uncomfortable about something, which became increasingly obvious to Mary. Previous talk of their marriage plans had also ceased, and Mary wondered if Freddie would call the engagement off. Mary and Freddie sat down and had a heartfelt conversation full of tears. Freddie struggled to confess to Mary on numerous occasions, but finally told her, Mary, I'm bisexual. Mary responded, No, Freddie, you're gay. Freddie admitted he had been engaging in sexual relations with men, with one in particular being his boyfriend, David Minns. Despite Freddie being unfaithful, Mary was very understanding and sympathetic for what he had been going through and supported Freddie 100%. Freddie was instantly relieved when Mary had taken the news well and he felt blessed to have a partner or friend as special as Mary. Their physical relationship had ended but their friendship had not. The two would split up but would both continue to be extremely close to one another. Mary continuing to be part of his friend's circle and entourage and going on tour with Queen regularly, like the old days. Mary was most obviously upset by the situation, but knew that there was nothing she could do, and had to let Freddie go. Mary was so supportive of Freddie that she would even attend gay nightclubs with him, throwing her full support behind him. Freddie purchased a nearby flat for Mary, as he was now quite wealthy from the success of A Night at the Opera. Freddie would regularly call Mary of an evening when he would get lonely, which he often did. Freddie hated being alone and would often go into a slight depression without having regular contact with others. He attempted to block this out with wild parties and adopting more and more cats to fill that hole. 
Freddie's sleep would suffer due to this, sleeping just two to three hours every night, and he would attempt to party and record and write music in order to block these feelings out. He would often suffer from nightmares when he did manage to get some sleep, and Mary would go on to have two serious relationships later on, marrying and divorcing Nick Holford before settling with Pierre's Cameron. She had two children and named Freddie Godfather to her son Richard, with her second son Jamie being born after Freddie's eventual death. Freddie was particularly protective of Mary and would always be there when she had relationship troubles, just like Mary was there for him. When the pair separated, they would share custody of their two cats, Tom and Jerry. The two cats were like their children and Freddie would often call Mary to speak to them and listen to their purrs and meows. This would also be the case when Freddie was on tour. He would call his house while touring and request his newly appointed assistant, Peter Freestone, to put the cats on. Almost ten years later, Freddie would move into Garden Lodge in Kensington, assigning each of his eleven cats with their own bedroom. Their names included Dorothy, Tiffany, Tom, Jerry, Goliath, Delilah, Lily, Miko, Oscar and Romeo. The cats were a mix of adopted cats strays and gifts from Mary and future partner Jim Hutton. Freddie would hang stockings at Christmas time for each of the cats and fill them with treats and toys. Freddie loved his cats dearly and at times they were his best friends supporting him through tough times in the absence of Mary and others. In 1976 Queen would go from strength to strength with Freddie writing the band's next two hits titled Somebody to Love and Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy for the album named A Day at the Races. Named again after another of the Marx Brothers films, it was the band's first album to be produced by themselves, as Roy Thomas Baker did not feature on this album. A Day at the Races would feature as a companion album to A Night at the Opera, and would share common themes and sounds with a mix of ballads, rock and unique techniques. The album peaked at number one in the UK, Japan and the Netherlands, the top five in the US, Canada and Norway, and made it to number eight in Australia, Austria and Sweden. The album was met harshly by critics compared to their previous album due to the lack of Bohemian Rhapsody-like hits, which had set the bar extremely high. It was clear though that the press just didn't like Queen and tried to push their agenda. The lead single, however, was a great track titled Somebody to Love. The beautiful rock ballad drew similarities to Bohemian Rhapsody and incorporates amazing vocals performed by Freddie and overlaid vocals supplied by Roger and Brian to form a gospel choir effect, sounding as though about a hundred people were singing. The beautiful choir of their voices combined with the gentle piano notes played by Freddie paint a picture of a man desperate to find love and questioning his faith in God and the role God plays in this search, despite being a deserving and hard-working man. Freddie's cries at the beginning of the track with the lyrics, Each morning I get up and die a little, can barely stand on my feet, take a look in the mirror and cry, Lord, what you're doing to me. I have spent all my years in believing you, but I just can't get no relief. These incredibly powerful and emotive lyrics set the scene for the listener, while Freddie uses his voice like an instrument, singing soft, loud, high and low, again highlighting the emotions of desperation, sadness and anger. Freddie was a massive fan of Aretha Franklin, and the inspiration for this track came from her gospel music style. 
It was the album's first of five singles and was a massive hit in the UK and Belgium, reaching number two, while also reaching number one in the Netherlands and number 13 on the US Billboard charts. John Deacon opted out of singing once again on this album as he disliked the sound of his own voice and was a reserved individual. Again, it is not clear whether the song was written directly about Freddie, but more than likely is in some way connected. It is said that Somebody to Love is Freddie's favourite song that he ever wrote, and the same goes for many fans around the world. Queen's second biggest hit from the album was titled Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, and would peak at number 17 on the UK charts, making it a minor hit. Freddie was the writer of this track and simply talks about being a romantic type of man. Freddie explained to his DJ friend Kenny Everett that it was his chance to do his usual ragtime or vaudeville style song that he likes to include on each album. A Day at the Races also included the fan favourite Tie Your Mother Down, written by Brian May in his college days while studying as an astrophysicist. He came up with this guitar riff and woke up one morning with the lyric in his head, Tie Your Mother Down, and began singing it while playing the riff. Brian originally thought it was a joke throwaway line, but Freddie told him to work on it and stick with it, and so the song was born. He managed to reach number 10 on the Dutch chart, while reaching number 31 in the UK. While the Freddie Mercury written track, The Millionaire Waltz, was written about their manager John Reed in a positive light, and about dragging them through some tough times. Brian, Freddie and John are the standouts in this track, as Brian produces a great waltzing classic Queen style riff. John produces a great bass line, and Freddie's vocals and piano work are perfectly on point. The last of the Mercury-written tracks to be mentioned on this album is the beautiful piano ballad Take My Breath Away, which is written about his now former fiancée, Mary Austin. Freddie's melodies and harmonies are spine-tingling in this tribute to Mary as Freddie sings, I would surely die if you dismiss me from your love. You take my breath away. So please don't go. Don't leave me here all by myself. I get ever so lonely from time to time. I will find you anywhere you go. I'll be right behind you. Freddie goes on to say I love you towards the end of the song as he expresses just how lost he is without her company and her love and is slightly protective and possessive over her. It is a difficult time for Freddie as he feels torn between being physically attracted to men but wanting the company of the woman who knows him best. Overall, the album was a success but didn't reach the heights of their previous album. A Day at the Races would go on to sell around 5.4 million copies with sales in the US of over 1.4 million copies. But despite a drop in sales, Queen would soon embark on a golden era of hits and sales. During the English summer of 1976, Queen would perform a free show at Hyde Park in England, organised by Richard Branson, with approximately 150,000 people in attendance, the largest at the time for any concert in London. In January 1977, Queen toured to promote their latest album, A Day at the Races, performing a total of 59 shows across North America, Europe and the UK, and wrapping it up in June that same year. Queen would use elaborate lighting for the first time during these shows, with the band members describing the lighting as being like standing under an oven, they were that hot and bright. It was during this period where the crowd began singing Queen's songs back to them at Bingley Hall in the UK, 
This was unheard of for these times, and usually the crowd just cheered and allowed the band to play. Freddie at first found it odd and annoying, but after Brian encouraged that it was a good thing, he began to embrace it instead, which led to future tracks being targeted at engaging and involving their fans further, and the band as a group decided this should be their target for their next album. During the shows in North America, Elvis Presley's daughter Lisa Marie Presley attended Queen's show in LA, which would become her first rock concert. She would later become friends with Freddie and gave him one of her father's special scarves that he used to wear. It was a proud moment for Freddie as he had always loved Elvis Presley's music. After this, Freddie would occasionally wear the scarf on stage during performances. Due to the media pressuring Queen and Freddie for interviews, John Reed had told them to refrain from engaging with the media as opening their mouths could cause problems for them. Freddie wasn't one to listen to the rules and would instantly break it. Freddie would later have dinner with John, telling him he had done an interview. John was furious and told Freddie, I thought I told you no interviews without clearing it up with me. Freddie replied with, Oh well dear, never mind. John stood up in the middle of the restaurant yelling, Well fuck you, if you don't want to work within my rules then you don't work with me, before storming out, leaving Freddie sitting there in shock. Upset with Freddie, John Reed returned home and sat down to watch some TV. He was disturbed sometime later by a brick being hurled through his window, only to discover that it was Freddie standing outside in the dark with his hands on his hips. Freddie expressed his anger at John, yelling, Don't you ever fucking leave me again, until Reed invited him in to sort it out. They patched up their relationship, but it became sour over time, leading to the eventual release of Reed from his contract. In the late 1970s, punk music began to take off in the US, UK and Australia. Queen began to be pressured by the media on how they will adapt to the sudden popularity of punk and if it would change their style. Queen, although wary of the new popular genre derailing their charting chances, they decided the only way they would make music was to do it on their own terms and stick to what they enjoy doing, but simplify their style, stripping back the operatic and grand scale of things to appeal to the current trends. NME and other media outlets attempted to pressure a range of mainstream artists to slip up, including Queen, with the hope of pushing punk into the mainstream. During 1977, Freddie would accept an offer to perform in an uncredited role in the Royal Ballet production, attempting to attract a wider audience for a charity event. Freddie had previously stated that he wanted to attempt to bring ballet to the masses and popularise it. This brought him unwanted attention when Enemy labelled him a prat and many critics found Freddie's obsession with ballet to be camp and ridiculous. Freddie was criticised at the time by Sex Pistols bass player Sid Vicious for his ballet performance when the two bands met after sharing the same studio while recording the next album. Freddie and Sid did not get along well, with Freddie calling Sid Sid Ferocious, which seemed to anger the punk rocker. Freddie then followed with, well what are you going to do about it? Freddie showed he wasn't to be messed with and labelled Sid as a bully. Little did the Sex Pistols know that if it wasn't for Freddie Mercury booking himself into the dentist for the first time in 15 years during 1976, they would never have been booked to replace Queen on the TV show Tonight with Bill Grundy due to that exact appointment. The Sex Pistols blew up after that performance thanks to Queen's late pullout. Halfway through 1977, Queen returned to the studio for their next album and they realised they would need to experiment to compete with the punk era. 
The album would be called News of the World and was released on the 28th of October 1977 with the band co-producing the album alongside sound engineer Mike Stone. On this album, the band decided they needed to expand their catalogue of hits with some arena-friendly songs that would engage the crowd and encourage them to join in. After hearing the live crowd at a particular show singing back to the band and seeing the song You'll Never Walk Alone, Brian May would come up with the concept of stomp stomp clap, stomp stomp clap while dreaming and the next day happened to find some old wooden boards laying around in the studio and began stomping on them to create the stomping beat. This was overdubbed multiple times to create a larger sounding group of stomps as if it was being performed by a crowd of people. Brian had thought of this method as the crowd were often restricted with movements and could only move their hands and feet. This stripped back stadium hit would become We Will Rock You, a hard rock classic that appealed to a wide range of audiences and got them to be part of the show. We Will Rock You would go on to become a sporting anthem and charted at number one in France as a singular release, but was released to the rest of the world as a double single with another stadium anthem titled We Are The Champions. The song was written by Freddie while he was thinking about football, as he wanted a perfect track for the crowd to sing along with and to become a sporting anthem. The song was designed to make their fans feel like they are champions alongside the band and to create the sense that we are all in this together. The double single soared into the top 10 on the charts all over the world. It hit number 2 on the UK and Dutch charts, number 3 in Ireland and Canada, number 4 on the US Billboard charts and reaching the top 10 in Norway, Australia and New Zealand. Other notable tracks on the album included the John Deacon track, Spread Your Wings, which tells the story of an underdog named Sammy breaking free to chase his dreams. Freddie makes the track his own, portraying each lyric with emotion and earning the song a spot inside the top 40 in the Netherlands and the UK. Freddie's input in regards to the songwriting was limited to just three songs on this album, with My Melancholy Blues and the funky track Get Down Make Love becoming somewhat of a theme song for gay nightclubs, with its cheeky and explicit references to sex and Freddie's lifestyle at the time. It would become one of the first tracks to insinuate Freddie's sexuality, which became more prominent in Queen's next few albums. News to the World as an album itself hit number one in France and on the Dutch chart. The top five in the UK, US, Norway and Canada and reached the top ten in Australia, Sweden and Germany. The band would tour the US as they began to make waves in the States. Over time the album would sell a massive nine and a half million copies worldwide, selling over 4.3 million copies in the US alone. Bands like Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles began to be challenged by Queen on the US charts, although they were still viewed as a strange and far too eccentric band by most Americans. Queen began to rise to fame and as the money rolled in, the band began to extend their entourage, resulting in the four members travelling separately in their own personal limo each, which ultimately would eat away at their bonding time outside the studio walls. In November 1977, Queen set off on their next world tour, travelling once again across North America, the UK and Europe. During that time, Irish DJ Paul Prenter had emerged taking an interest in Freddie and quickly formed a friendship with him. This led Freddie to assign him as his personal manager. Prenter would become a bad influence on Freddie, luring him away from his bandmates regularly and taking him to his favourite seedy gay nightclubs. 
Despite all of these distractions, the band still got along great and would find a large space to rehearse together before gigs, having plenty of laughs along the way. Americans were amazed by the effort put into stage production as if it was a live musical. With the world's first mobile lighting rig in the shape of a queen's crown, Freddie's costume design was equally as impressive and he would often perform in either a biker suit or a black and white harlequin style diamond checkered one piece designed by their costume designer Zandra Rhodes. While on tour, Brian's father would attend a concert of his for the first time at Madison Square Garden. Brian's father had previously believed he had thrown his education away but quickly changed his mind when he saw how good of a guitarist his son was at this particular show. Queen performed 46 shows in total from 1977 to May of 1978. Most of the shows went for two hours long which would become their longest set list performed while on tour. In 1978, the band's next project was an album called Jazz. Queen decided to record the album in France due to the UK taxes on royalties being ridiculously expensive to record there. Former producer Roy Thomas Baker would also make a return to produce the album for Queen this time around, with the sounds of the French setting being very influential on the album. It peaked at number 2 on the UK chart, number 3 on the Dutch chart, number 5 in Germany, and reaching number 6 in the US, Sweden and Norway. Other noticeable cultural sounds included Freddie's Indian and Iranian Persian heritage, this is evident in the tracks he wrote titled Mustafa, which became a rarely played crowd favourite that speaks of Arabic terms and Allah, and the track Jealousy, a gentle ballad that features a Brian May special where he created his own form of a sitar for the track. The song acts as a type of sequel to the much earlier Queen track titled White Queen that also features this sitar riff. Jealousy has been said to have been written about Freddie's jealousy of another man becoming Mary's new partner, which he has often been protective of her in the past, but Freddie often refused to comment on the true meaning behind this song. The album Jazz included the double single Bicycle Race with Fat Bottom Girls. The tracks were released together and hit number 11 on the UK charts and number 24 in the US. Bicycle Race was ridden by Freddie after he had observed the Tour de France that was happening while they were in the country. While Brian wrote Fat Bottom Girls as a tribute to all the beautiful women of France, which included a promotional video for their upcoming US tour featuring half-naked French women riding around on bicycles to the song. But the best track of the album was the single Don't Stop Me Now, which was yet another song Freddie had written. Don't Stop Me Now would reach number 9 on the UK charts, but only reached a poor 86 on the US charts. The song spoke about Freddie's happiness at the time with partying and clubbing, and simply just wanting to enjoy himself without others questioning or attempting to stop him. His bandmates weren't too keen about the song being heavily centred around Freddie's lifestyle choices at the time, but decided to leave it in. The album overall received mixed reviews and was criticised for objectifying women in relation to the song Fat Bottom Girls and again saw a drop in sales with 5.8 million copies sold this time worldwide. The jazz tour became their longest tour yet, which included 79 live shows between 1978 and 1979. Part of the show included topless women riding bicycles on stage during Bicycle Race, which again attracted unwanted criticism. While every town that Queen played in would funnily enough sell out of bike bells so they could ring them during Queen's performance of Bicycle Race. 
During 1978, Queen would part ways with their manager John Reed, as Roger Bryan and John Deacon had already had enough of him by that point. Reed tended to favour Freddie compared to the others, and it tended to put a wedge between the band. The band as a group decided it would be best to move forward without Reed as their manager, and decided not to renew his contract. John Reed was already juggling both Queen and Elton John, two of the biggest acts in the UK, and didn't dispute their decision after their acting lawyer, Jim Beach, spoke on their behalf, informing John of the news. Freddie and John Reed did, however, forgive one another eventually, and Queen decided to assign Jim Beach as their new manager from 1978 onwards. Freddie and the band decided to throw a massive Halloween theme party for the jazz album launch in New Orleans in the US. In attendance were a range of celebrities, transvestites, cross-dressers, strippers, while there were also nude waitresses, naked model wrestling, dwarves with cocaine trays strapped to their heads, snake charmers, the New Orleans band, and a large lady who was known for smoking cigars from her vagina. Freddie knew how to party and would become one of the most craziest party animals of all time. Roger describes one man's job in particular was to lie under cold cuts of meat and when people came to grab their cold meat, he would jiggle all the meats as he was acting as a table. Freddie would throw parties every night if he could and hosted many dress-up themes including thieves, animals, ogres and come as your favourite person. Freddie, of course, the only one at the party to come dressed as himself. One of Freddie's parties included his guests being flown to an island in Ibiza which included flamenco dances and fireworks. He would often have pet names for each of his friends that attended his parties, calling Elton John Sharon, himself Melina, Rod Stewart Phyllis, Roger Taylor Liz, Brian May Maggie, and Mary Austin Steve. He, he just loved to be flamboyant and party, even on one occasion going clubbing with Princess Diana after dressing her up in disguise in drag. Freddie began to really explore his sexuality around this time, and he would describe to his friends and bandmates all the antics he would get up to. He was fascinated by the gay nightlife of New York, and began to become obsessed with clubbing. He explained that he was open to try just about anything, and was only out to have some fun. With the album not becoming as big of a success as he initially thought, Queen had worked incredibly hard on the album, and had perhaps burnt out a bit by the end of touring in August of 1979, almost a year later. As Freddie began to drift away from his bandmates and into the club scene with the aid of Paul Prenter, Freddie had not yet officially came out to the public, and never really would, but those that knew him obviously knew. The media would often quiz him on his sexuality, but could never get confirmation directly from him, as he believed that it was his business, which is completely understandable. In general, the public didn't seem to mind as much as the media. Being gay had been legalised for 11 years beforehand in 1967 for over 21-year-olds, and as the 80s approached, it became a lot more popularised. Although it still did present danger and was risky to announce yourself as gay during these times, as many were still firmly against it. Queen would go on a small tour called the Crazy Tour in 1979, before heading off on their major tour for the game album. The Crazy Tour was performed in conjunction with the single release of Crazy Little Thing Called Love as a promotional tour. 
Only 20 intimate shows were performed in the UK in front of no more than 2,000 diehard fans. The exclusive shows were said to be filled with experimental music and is referred to by fans as one of the best tours they had done. Freddie would conclude the show by being hoisted up onto the shoulders of Superman or Darth Vader and it was the first appearance of Freddie with his hair cut short in public. During 1979, Freddie began to get addicted to the New York gay scene quite heavily. New York was dangerous and seedy at the time and Paul Prenner led him astray providing plenty of hookups and cocaine along the way. He would make himself indispensable by providing Freddie with this service and would make Freddie feel like he relied upon Prenter. It was during these nights out that Freddie would meet Village People member Glenn Hughes. Glenn's character whilst in the group was a moustache wearing biker. Freddie is said to have adopted the moustache biker look from Glenn's character which was evident in the music videos for Queen's next singles, Play the Game and Crazy Little Thing Called Love. On the 5th of October 1979, Queen released their lead single titled Crazy Little Thing Called Love from their upcoming album The Game. The fun bopping acoustic pop rock tune called Crazy Little Thing Called Love soared to number two in the UK and number one in both Australia and the US, becoming their biggest hit since Bohemian Rhapsody. The song was written by Freddie Mercury as a tribute to the late Elvis Presley and would become the first time he would perform with a guitar of any kind live at concerts. The music video featured Freddie with slightly shorter hair wearing a leather jacket like a biker. He wrote the song within 10 minutes while having a bubble bath in his hotel room in Munich, Germany. Freddie called for his portable keyboard after thinking up the lyrics, played some notes and jumped out of the bath, wrapped himself in a towel and requested his guitar. He started strumming along and came up with the rhythm and melody and raced straight down to the studio, notifying the others that they need to record it straight away. Freddie's limited ability on acoustic guitar ultimately helped him come up with the simple chord progression of the song and within a matter of minutes a number one worldwide hit was born. The 80s were now in full swing, and following the success of Crazy Little Thing Called Love, the track titled Save Me would be released on the 25th of January 1980. Written by Brian May, Save Me is about a friend's recent divorce and is a tragic rock and roll tale that peaked inside the top 10 in Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Ireland, and reached number 11 in the UK. On the 30th of May, the Freddie Mercury track Play the Game would be released and saw it reach the top 10 in Norway, Switzerland and Ireland and came in at number 14 on the UK chart. In the promotional music video for Play the Game, Freddie would sport his new look moustache with much shorter hair. Freddie appeared to have finally found an appearance he was fully happy with, although those around him including his bandmates didn't like it and warned him about media backlash. Freddie is also seen wearing a Flash Gordon superhero shirt, hinting at their next studio album. Freddie wrote the song about his breakup with his current boyfriend, Tony Baston, as the song talks about love being a game and warning people not to play with someone's love, especially when they are vulnerable and genuinely searching for love. As Freddie sings, This is your life. Don't play hard to get. It's a free world. All you have to do is fall in love. Finally, on the 30th of June 1980, Queen would release their ape studio album titled The Game. They again parted ways with Roy Thomas Baker as their producer in favour of Reinhold Mack, a German producer where they recorded the album in Munich in Germany with the hope of making further inroads in the American market. 
They would completely make the album from scratch, meeting in the studio with only limited ideas. It featured four hit singles, and it was the first time the band had featured a synthesizer in an album after previously including a notice stating how they do not use synthesizers on their albums. The album was both critically and commercially a success, and is referred to as one of their best album releases. It reached number one in the UK, Canada, Netherlands and the US, and would remain the only album of Queens to do so in the States. The album over time would sell 9.3 million copies worldwide, with Queen once again returning to form. The smash hit Another One Bites the Dust earned them a second number one in the US off the same album after being released in August 1980. Surprisingly, the song only reached number seven in the UK, although the album was targeted at a more American-styled audience. It also managed to reach number one in Spain, Israel and Canada, and reached the top five in Australia, South Africa and New Zealand. The John Deacon-ridden masterpiece features an infectious and catchy bass line and is known as one of the best bass guitar songs of all time, with its funky attitude-driven riff. Deacon was adamant that he wanted to go down the funk path, with Freddie backing him on this one, despite Brian and Roger objecting him and wanting to stay on the more classical rock path. John Deacon took control on this track and directed a reluctant Roger to cover his snare drum in tape, creating a more dull, dead-type beat for the track. The track spent three weeks at number one in the US and was their longest charting top 10 hit with 15 weeks in 1980 in the US and a further 16 weeks in 1981. It was a number one hit across radio stations worldwide and charted at number two on the US disco and soul singles charts. Pop sensation Michael Jackson came to several LA shows while Queen were there on tour as he was close with Freddie at the time. MJ believed the song was a certain hit and encouraged them to release it as he loved the track. The song when played on radio opened the band to a new market, expanding their fan base due to the change in style. This new fan base included the African American community who loved the soul and funk style of the song and couldn't tell if the singer was black or white. Queen had now well and truly broken into the US market with massive hit after hit. After mega hits such as Bohemian Rhapsody, We Will Rock You, We Are The Champions, Crazy Little Thing Called Love and Another One Bites The Dust, it was just the beginning for Queen and Freddie as they now had to develop a new style to compete well into the 80s and the next decade would produce some of the craziest and most devastating moments of their careers yet. Okay everyone, that concludes part one of episode one on Freddie Mercury. I hope you enjoy this first half of the story and can join me next week for part two as we jump straight back into Freddie's life throughout the 80s, the death of a legend, and then wrap up his incredible story. Thank you to everyone that downloaded and tuned in for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe for our upcoming episodes and share and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can also head to Patreon to sign up to one of three membership packages starting at just $1 a month. Once again, thanks everyone. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is Lyrics of Their Life.